I'm having a good time. You are? Yeah. I can tell. We are rolling. Terrible happy talks. Terrible happy talks. Terrible happy talks. Terrible happy talks. Today's guest is Dr. Changa, and he's back on the show to discuss the topic of dengue fever. Changa is a medical doctor with over 20 years experience specializing in internal medicine and infectious diseases. He did his residence with Danbury Hospital, which is an affiliate of Yale University Hospital in Connecticut, USA. He's a frequent collaborator with regional and international arms of the World Health Organization, and he has held leadership positions at medical organizations worldwide. As an expert in his field, his research paper on dengue fever has been published in medical journals and regularly cited by medical professionals. He openly promotes and advocates for preventative medicine, holistic lifestyle approaches, and nutrition-based therapies. Changa openly describes himself as a healer, teacher, and lifelong learner. But, in my opinion, he's just a really nice guy who knows lots of stuff. Dr. Changa, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you, Shannon. It's good to be back. It's great to have you back. How are you, brother? Very well. Very well. I'm uh, very excited about what uh, what you're doing and and I'm very excited to be a part of it. Great. Like it's um it's just so it's so nice to have your knowledge and experience um on hand and I'm not the only person that appreciates that and utilizes it. <laughs> and uh so today we're going to we're going to delve into dengue fever. Yes. Um you know, my basic knowledge of dengue fever is this. So traveling around the world various times i often uh look up some of the the vaccinations i might need before i leave my my home country and what i've learned about dengue through that process is is minimal but the way i imagine dengue is that it's a non-deadly version of malaria however you can't take preventative medication if you're traveling to countries where it's present and it's only found in developing countries. That's my that's my, you know, layman's knowledge of it. Um, but like, what is it exactly? Okay, so you hit on some some important points there in your <clears throat> in your opening take on dengue. Uh, it is true that there is uh, no medicine that we can take to prevent dengue, which is a contrast from malaria. You know, if we travel to malaria-infested areas, we have the option of taking preventative medicines along with other preventative measures to avoid being bitten by mosquitoes and using repellent and and clothing and modifying our itinerary uh, based on the mosquitoes' habits and so on. So for dengue, there's no medicine to prevent it and there's no medicine to treat it. And it um, it is a virus, so there's a subtle difference between malaria which is a parasite um, and dengue which is a, a virus but um, f- in, in all lessons they are both mosquito-borne illnesses which means they're transmitted from person to person through mosquitoes malaria has a much higher death rate than dengue does okay can we just go back a step yes can you clarify the difference between a parasite and a virus it's, it has a lot to do with the genetic makeup of each of these living creatures. It, in, if we look around our surrounding today, um, we may see a dog running that way, but I know down 
to our left, there are some cows. So essentially the difference between a cow and a dog is in its genetic makeup, which, which in turn codes for what it looks like and how it behaves. So the difference between a virus and a parasite and a fungus and a bacteria uh, are very, very similar at microscopic levels. So right. vi viruses are, tend to be much smaller and much simpler in structure. But that doesn't mean that their diseases are mild uh, by any means. Viruses have, you know, confer some of the most deadly illnesses that we know of, such as rabies, which is virtually 100% fatal, but also very mild illnesses like the common cold. So it runs the entire spectrum of diseases. Sounds like spectrum's the key word there. Yes. Yeah. Rabies is 100% untreatable. Is that what you're saying? I've never, like, sorry to go off topic, but no, that's no. interesting. Um, there, there are some... Uh, there's a, there are well, the most famous case of a success story in rabies uh, comes from Wisconsin in the US. I believe it was in the mid-90s where a young girl came down with rabies and her doctor successfully cured her by inducing a medical coma, essentially shutting down her brain for a long period of time and then slowly restarting it after the virus had come and gone. So that's referred to as the Milwaukee Protocol for treating rabies. But there have been attempts at replicating that protocol in other subsequent patients, and it hasn't worked. With rabies specifically? With rabies. So, so our take is that rabies, once a person develops symptoms of rabies, it's virtually, and we use the word virtually because of that one case in Western medicine and the some of the more traditional medicines in the ancient world will tell you that they have cures for rabies, such mm. as some of the Ayurveda medicines, and which I have heard through second-hand information. So, but for all intents and purposes, in our Western medicine culture, we say that rabies is 100% fatal. Right. That's just a, a better line to take. Yes. And then if you have success, well, then that's, that's a better... Okay, I get it. I see what you're saying. Um... <sighs> Going back to dengue, yes. As a doctor, yes. like you've written a paper on it, which has been published and cited. Um, why are you so interested in dengue? It kind of happened by by chance. Um, I finished my infectious diseases training in New Orleans, uh, Louisiana, in, in in the U.S., and I had a a great opportunity to work in Singapore with the Communicable Disease Center. Um, in Singapore, which is the national and regional outbreak response center um, for that part of, of Asia. And there was a very strong um, tradition of dengue research and clinical practice at the CDC in Singapore. So I naturally became part of the team that did a lot of work with dengue. Um, we even went to Cambodia frequently to collaborate with the doctors there to help um, manage dengue issues in Cambodia mm. and so through it I became interested in it as a clinician as a treating physician but also as a research scientist and um, so it was all due to my stay with the CDC in Singapore so how many cases of dengue would you say you've treated oh, I've lost count. count I've lost count so if you've if you've treated that many like countless you must have seen the spectrum of the illness and the personalities of it, would you say? Is that a way to describe it? Like yes. its characteristics? Absolutely. And the patterns? 
Absolutely. So what are some common themes you've, you've, you've noticed over, <clears throat> over time? Dengue is a disease of paradoxes. That's, that's how I can describe it um, in an essence. A disease, of, a disease of paradoxes because the management of dengue ought to be simple. The concepts ought to be simple. But it is one of the most misunderstood illnesses even among physicians worldwide. And there are many reasons for Why? that. Yeah. Many reasons for that. Dengue behaves differently than what a physician would expect a disease to behave. For instance, the early part of dengue, um, so if I just zoom out a bit, dengue is a reasonably well predictable 10-day illness. In 10 days, it comes and goes. And the first few days is when you have the high fever and the symptoms of aches and pains and, and what, what most of us are quite familiar with as dengue symptoms. During that stage when the person feels quite miserable, that's actually not a dangerous part of the illness. The, the worst that could happen is, is dehydration. But following what we call the febrile phase, where you have fever, on perhaps the second half of the fourth day to the fifth day to the sixth day is what's referred to as the critical period. Now, paradoxically, the fever goes away during the critical period and the person with dengue may actually feel a lot better physically. And this can throw people off. The inexperienced clinician would say, aha, this illness is now getting better. And the person may say, may think that, wow, I'm actually getting better, so I'm, I'm safe, quote-unquote. So that is an example of a of a paradox where in dengue you actually have to pay close attention during this critical phase when the fever has already gone. And so the patient mm. is like, oh, I'm recovering, I'm getting better, I'm at the other end of it. But that's when you need to really be cautious and, and act wisely. Correct? Absolutely. And, and, and there's not mm. much that um, a person with dengue can do in, in this situation. And a lot of it falls um, in the hands of the treating physician. So the physicians who are managing dengue must be very, very familiar with how dengue behaves in the initial febrile phase, followed by the critical phase, and the last few days would be the recovery phase. And a thorough understanding of these patterns is really, really necessary in order for someone to correctly manage dengue fever. Right. How do how do patients generally act when they're diagnosed with dengue? Like, what are their what are their reactions? Are they do they freak out? Is it anxiety? What is it? That's what, an how do, excellent. How do they go? That's an excellent question, and I'm glad you <coughs> glad you brought it up because yeah. dengue is is uh, regarded with a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety, primarily because of how you feel. I mean, I've had dengue, and it's no fun. I mean, it's, a, it's an intense illness. Having said that, um, people could have very mild symptoms with dengue or sometimes no symptoms with dengue and they wouldn't even know that they had dengue. But for those of us who have been unfortunate enough to have the full-blown symptoms of dengue, it is, it is tough to deal with. Let's talk about the symptoms. So let's just 
clinically go yes. through what are the common symptoms or right. from the start to the dura- throughout and then to, uh, towards the end. Right, that's an excellent point. I think that's a good place to start. Let's just, let's just clear, let's clear that up. Right. So before we even get into the symptoms, I'm going to throw in one more thing is what's called an incubation period. The incubation period is the time from when we're exposed to, in this case, the dengue virus through the mosquito bite to when we actually have manifestations of symptoms. Now, fortunately, in dengue, that incubation period is short. It may be four days, five days, sometimes up to ten days. But it's, for all intents and purposes, it is an incubation period of about five to seven days. After? After being bitten by a mosquito. And it's only mosquitoes that carry it? Yes. Here's a random question. If a mosquito carries dengue, yes. is the mosquito sick with dengue? And what? why doesn't... Is that a stupid question? It's not a stupid question. <laughs> there's there's no such thing. I was thinking about it. I'm like, if mosquitoes have got dengue, like, why aren't they sick? No, they, are they sick? They are. Are they just carriers? It's, it's, I've had a really hard time putting mosquitoes in the realm of purpose. <laughs> and and I know that every creature um, in our biosphere has a purpose, but mosquitoes. Right? I mean, I've been, I've had malaria, I've had dengue, and I and I ask myself, and it's not just me. The ancient Greeks had the same question. So the Anopheles mosquito that transmits malaria, if you take the Greek root of that name, Anopheles, it means useless. <laughs> So even the Greeks call the mosquitoes useless. But, you know, let's be fair. Mm. I mean, we know that, that uh, a lot of the bird species depend on, on mosquito larvae and mosquitoes. For, so they are part of the food chain. So I have to concede that they must exist. But from a human perspective, it's a terrible, terrible menace. Not only is it is it a discomfort, but they carry diseases with seemingly absolutely no benefit to us humans, except that certain bird species and, and fish may survive because of mosquitoes so, yeah, in the life cycle. I, I think they're here to teach us a lesson to not underestimate the little guy. There you go. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're so small and they can have yeah. such an impact. Absolutely. Like, for such a small thing. Absolutely. They cause so much carnage. Absolutely. So getting back to the question that you asked, so um, what happens is the mosquito has a blood thinner mm. that it injects into us before it takes a blood meal. Okay. So it injects first and sucks subsequently. So that's, that's what it does. And it, okay, so it puts the blood thinner in there. Yes. So it's able to extract your blood, yes. which it needs as food or wants yes. as food. As food. And does it have... Yes. So then when it in, in, like puts the blood thinner in, yes. is that when it's actually being injected? Absolutely. And does it have saliva? So, so it, it comes from... So it comes out the, in the saliva. What we call the saliva glands of the mosquito. <clears throat> so let's say... Pretend that I'm a mosquito, okay, and I would feed on a human that has dengue fever and is, you know, has a fever, so the, the levels of the virus in that person is quite high, and I take a blood meal. Uh, before I take a blood meal, I inject the blood thinner, and I suck the blood into my belly. And the dengue virus initially goes to my belly and then makes its way into my saliva glands. So when I go to the next person and I inject the blood thinner, that's when the virus gets transmitted. Right. So inside the mosquito, the virus 
does a little journey from from the abdomen to. So how long does the mosquito actually carry the 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 virus? Well, the mosquitoes can carry the virus as long as it keeps feeding on humans with. So it's with not dengue. like it, it it has like a limited amount of it. Like so, it doesn't you know do that process once and then that's it. It's it's used up all its dengue resources. Is it just? It just stays. Like, the, it's got a, a lot of it. I the, the issue with the dengue mosquito, it's the Aedes, A-E-D-E-S, Aedes species of mosquitoes. They're very aggressive biters. Shannon, you may have recognized the Aedes mosquito around here. It has, it's called the Asian tiger mosquito. It's got black and white stripes. Seen them. And, and it's very different from some of the other species that fly around and bite us. And, and it sits parallel to our skin. Mm. And it's got these two little, almost like hind legs that hook upwards. So it's a very easy mosquito to spot. And if you've if you've seen them, they are relentless. They bite during the yeah. daytime, and they're pretty aggressive. Unfortunately, these mosquitoes can't fly long distances. Um, some some sources would quote 200 meters. Some would wow. say a quarter mile. So it's a it's a it's a short radius, but there's lots of them. Because all the dengue mosquito would need to to proliferate is is could be um, a potted plant with some water in it, um, or could be one of the tires that we see here that holds down the the thatch so roots. So they're like warm, moist, dark. Well, it's environments. The, the the thing is, it's not so picky. All it needs is a little bit of water, right. and the eggs are so hardy that even if there's a certain amount of desiccation or drying, they survive. Ah, gotcha. And dengue is an, is an urban illness. So anywhere where you see urbanization, mm-hmm. so all along the tropics, uh, in cities, in urban areas, and in, in, in South America, around Brazil, it's really, really taking off. Um, it is not a disease necessarily of remote areas. Malaria is more common in remote areas but dengue we have in the cities in urban settings mm. because all it needs is that little bit of clean water mm. it lays eggs and off it goes wow I had no idea um, the next question I've got is um, are there various strains of dengue is that a way to describe it or is it just a spectrum of how potent the virus is in a particular mosquito so I've heard stories of People and I, even recently, I know people um, here in Bali who've had it like last week, yes. and to me, they seem okay. Like they, like, oh, how are you? Oh, I got dengue. And I'm like, oh, you still at work? You know, or you only had two days off? You know, like it's. And then I've heard stories of people saying that they feel like their their joints are going to snap, and I've, that's why it's called the bone breaking virus. Or, yes. Yeah. Um, so, is there strains, or is it just varying the potency? Okay, so there's two aspects to this. Um, there are four known strains of the dengue virus. It's called dengue 1, 2, 3, and 4. Okay. And in terms of potency, uh, it's not dependent on the strains, but more so it's dependent on how much of the virus uh, we are infected with. And I think there are lots of other things that we haven't even s- begun to understand about why a, a disease would be more severe in one person and then completely without symptoms in the other. Mm. So there's lots of things that we are still um, engaging in, in clinical research uh, mm. to find out answers. But getting back to the symptoms, so the first is that we have 
to be exposed to dengue potentially. So the first criteria that we look for is that you have to live in an area that has dengue or you have to have traveled to an area that has dengue. I mean, if you're up in Greenland mm. and you have fever and joint pains, that would be something else. Yeah. So the, the primary symptom we look for in dengue fever is fever. It's usually a high fever, along with a few symptoms like nausea, vomiting, uh, a rash. Um, and there are certain blood tests that we, uh, when done early enough, for instance, your white blood cell count, which is responsible for fighting infections, that's one of the first abnormalities we see is that you see a decrease in the white blood cell counts. And... And with these symptoms, Shannon, all you can say is that you probably have dengue fever. That was my next question. So a good GP, yes. okay, yes. If, if he was aware of it and mindful of it as a possibility, what would be best practice protocol for a good GP? Would it, would it be a blood test immediately or would it be subsequent visits in close succession like you said there's the three phases so the first phase it may be hard to clarify if it's just a common cold or flu um, but then a couple of days later it would be more obvious because the symptoms would have already morphed into something else what, what do you think I think the the practice that a physician living in dengue areas mm. should absolutely include an awareness of what's going on in the community in okay. terms of dengue numbers gotcha. so dengue tends to it, it, it it's always in the background but then it tends to come in waves and if if the GP if uh, he or she is aware that oh dengue numbers are up again and then the physician would see someone in the clinic that has fever and some of these symptoms like nausea, body pains and so on. Rash? A rash. Or is that later in the cycle? There's two types of rashes. And, and, and there's an early rash that's a general redness like, a, uh, like what you would see with German measles. And yep. there's a dengue-specific rash that comes a bit later on. But the key thing is that by symptoms alone, it is impossible to discern between dengue and dengue-like illnesses. And that's one of the messages, key messages that I try to get across to um, physicians that I train in dengue is that all you can say at the end of your assessment face-to-face -face with your patient is that the patient probably has dengue fever or is unlikely to have dengue fever. So if you take the words unlikely and probably, you would see that they are not definites. So the definitive diagnosis of dengue requires the demonstration of the dengue virus or a part of the dengue virus in the patient's blood. And how that's done um, is you demonstrate the presence of the virus through a fancy molecular test called a PCR, a polymerase chain reaction. But that test is uh, rather expensive. But now we have a very handy test kit that includes a dengue viral antigen so it's a part of the dengue virus that we can pick up with a test kit it's called the ns1 n is for non-structural antigen one 
it's a part of um, the, the number of proteins that make up the dengue virus. But what's really important to remember, Shannon, is that the presence of the virus in someone's blood corresponds nicely with the fever. So if you're seeing someone who's seven days into the illness, who no longer has a fever, trying to demonstrate the dengue virus in their blood would not be fruitful because the virus would have come and gone from the bloodstream. And if you do a test that looks for the dengue virus in the blood on day seven, on day eight, when the person is no longer febrile, then you would not be able to definitively say that this person has dengue fever. So the ideal situation is that we do the diagnostic test when the patient still has a fever and you prove that it's dengue and that is very important because then we can monitor these patients like you correctly pointed out usually with a daily blood test um, and see when they enter the critical phase are they going to be okay or are they headed towards some bad outcomes okay so making that early diagnosis is very very important okay and i really like what you said about the physician being um in tune with what's going on in the community and that was i was just thinking you were saying how a, a mosquito can only um travel around 200 meter radius so i've heard that with malaria, for example, if there's malaria in a village, okay, they can actually like clear uh, malaria through the village by actually like putting the whole village in quarantine and letting it just run its course through the village because and not going anywhere near the village, and then it can't spread further than that if people come in and out of the village, like coming and going, even though the people in that area will be suffering, but it'll stop the spread wider because of that that, that small radius. Is that the same? Would you agree with that? Or I'll give you another example, Shannon, which highlights um, the importance of public health even more. Um, Sri Lanka, where I was yep. born and raised. So I had my first and second episodes of malaria in Sri Lanka as a child. Right. Um, but Sri Lanka has managed to eradicate malaria altogether in the entire country. And that is due to intense aggressive public health measures of educating people of a combined mosquito vector program where really the mosquito breeding sites are uh, contained and physicians all over the country are encouraged to test for malaria when there's a suspicion of malaria and imagine dengue has a very short incubation period as we talked about M malaria can present anywhere from two weeks to even three months or sometimes even longer after exposure. So it becomes an even more challenging illness to, to manage in terms of public health. But, um, but I was very, very happy to note that Sri Lanka has now eradicated malaria and is considered malaria-free. And, 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 and you put it back to education. It's and good public health policy. Absolutely. Education is a very, very important part of it. Not not just educating the providers but educating the the population if you travel to another country that has malaria please take precautions and if you come back and if you have a fever please insist that you get tested for malaria so you don't spread it around all over again so education is absolutely key awareness is absolutely key and none of this will work without good government support and a very very robust public health sector so 
That's really interesting. I, I do want to get back to symptoms. We've talked, you've sort of talked a lot about common symptoms such as, you know, fever, lack of energy, nausea. Um, can we talk about advanced symptoms? And yes. also, what happens if someone gets it a second time? Is it is it worse or is it just the same? I don't know. So I, I'll tackle the first part of that advanced, question. Advanced symptoms. So in dengue, we have the symptoms that that define the illness as probably dengue fever then we have another set of symptoms called warning signs the importance of the warning signs is that it tells us whether or not a person is likely to progress to severe forms of dengue now there's a very important distinction here that if let's say Shannon that both of us have dengue and let's say that you have fever, you have body pains, uh, you have nausea, and we do a full blood count and your white blood count is 3,000, which is low. Okay. And we live in a dengue area, so we can say that, oh, Shannon probably has dengue fever, but because you still have a fever of 39.5 degrees centigrade, we do a blood test for the NS1 antigen and it's positive, and then we say, Shannon has confirmed dengue fever. But let's say if I have the same scenario, except I have some additional symptoms of warning signs, that means that I am more likely to have severe dengue than you, but it does not mean that you would never have severe dengue. The likelihood of you progressing to severe dengue is less, much less, okay. than someone with warning signs. Okay. So what are those warning signs? If you have tummy pain, abdominal pain, that really doesn't go away. And I'm not talking about a, a little ache here and an ache yeah. there, but really persistent abdominal pain. Persistent vomiting, throwing up, throwing okay. up, throwing up. And if, if the brain is affected, so adults generally can become lethargic. Children can become quite restless. And another warning sign is if there are signs of fluid accumulation outside of where the fluid should be so generally can you yes. be more specific like like would you say swelling then exactly so there's like swelling, swelling of the joints um, or it could be so we have certain cavities in our body we have the chest cavity mm -hmm. we have the abdominal cavity so if that starts filling with fluid so people get short of breath or people feel bloated and distended and and you could even sense it in, in in your tissue, your hands may be swollen, your feet may be swollen. So the so the fluid accumulation in the wrong places, that's a warning sign. And if your liver is enlarged and tender, that's another warning sign. And in terms of a blood test, um, so a blood, if I can just take a step back, mm -hmm. our blood has a few components. It has the red blood cells that carry oxygen and, and the various gases. It has the white blood cells that fight infection and fight cancer. The platelets are responsible for blood clotting so that we don't bleed the moment we, you know, ding our elbow on a table. And then we have the liquid part of the blood, which is called the plasma. It's the, the straw-colored fluid that, that forms the, the, the liquid volume of the blood. So... A warning sign would be if the platelet 
the number of platelets rapidly declined. Mm-hmm. Okay, took a nose dive of white blood cells uh, of the platelets. Oh, the, sorry, the platelets. Of the platelets, yeah, yeah, that's responsible yeah, for clotting. Yeah, gotcha. Excuse and at me. the same time, the blood appears to be thicker because the plasma has seeped out of the blood vessels into the tissue. Ah, so gotcha. the blood appears concentrated. At the same time, the platelet count goes down. So if you see that combination of findings, that also counts as a warning sign. Ah. So you can it have is tricky. It is very tricky. So you can have dengue with regular symptoms. Mm-hmm. You can have dengue with warning signs. And then you have severe dengue, where you have severe uh, impairment of the organs, severe bleeding, or circulatory collapse. So okay. severe dengue is very, very difficult to, to manage. Um, and our goal as, as people who treat dengue is to identify the people who are more likely to progress to severe dengue and manage them very, very carefully to give their bodies the best chance of avoiding going to severe dengue. Okay. So, if, you know, we, we've talked about this on the last time you were on the, on the show. You were talking about wanting to empower people to take more ownership of their health. Yes. If we have an individual yes. who suspects they may have something more severe yes. than a flu, yes. flu-like symptoms, yes. can you maybe give us a, a guide as to how they should be approaching their general practitioner? Yes. So what should they be, what questions should they be asking? How should they go into that, con- that initial conversation? That's, that's an excellent, excellent thing to talk so give, about. Give them some tools right. to, yeah. So what I would encourage everyone to do is, and you could Google this if you if you put in WHO, short for World Health Organization, yep. dengue guidelines um, from 2009. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'd come up with this 100-page document. Yeah. You don't need to read that, but there are a couple of um, pictorials, graphs that really tell you what the three phases of this illness are: mm-hmm. the febrile phase, the critical gotcha. phase, the, yep. and the recovery phase. So if they just pay attention to that diagram and there's another diagram in there that tells you what happens in each of those three phases the febrile phase the fever would go up mm-hmm. the headache yeah, and then all the, the blood tests the vomiting right. rash yeah. and so all of if you if people just pay attention to some of the important pictorials don't read the text okay <laughs> and then that will give you um um, a basic understanding of what to expect in the three stages of this illness. And it'll also help even, I'm convinced that even to the lay person, it'll be, it'll make intuitive sense which blood test should be done at which stage of the illness. Okay. So being familiar with that, and when I, when I do uh, workshops for, for people with dengue Mm -hmm. this is one of the things that I um, really talk about Mm -hmm. is which blood test should be done at which stage of the illness to to get the results that we want so being aware of that because sometimes uh, if one encounters a provider who's not very familiar with uh, with this aspect of things (coughs) the wrong blood test may get ordered and and uh, you might be misled I'll give you an example there's an antibody test called it called the IgM Mm Generally, IgM uh, antibodies are produced by us against invading uh, foreign elements as a first response. 
So that happens within a few days of, of being infected or invaded with something. And generally, the IgMs are thought to be short-lived, you know, quick to come, quick to go kind of uh, an antibody response, except in dengue, the IgM antibody has been known to last up to three months. Now, let's pretend, Shannon, that if I had fever today with some nausea, some vomiting, maybe I noticed a faint rash, and I go to my physician and and I and an IgM test is ordered. But imagine if the real truth is that I have influenza now, not dengue. Let's say we were magically able to identify that I had influenza and not dengue. But let's say back in March, I actually had dengue fever. So the IgM that's measured today could actually be the leftover IgM from my dengue episode in March. So that that's one example where the blood test taken out of context mm. could be could be quite misleading. Uh, but the test to do would be, if I still have fever, would be the NS1 antigen test, which is actually measuring a part of the virus. It's not measuring my response to the virus. So, so that's an example where being aware of which test mm. to do in which stage and being aware of the limitations of the blood tests, mm. it's really, really helpful. So communication is crucial. Absolutely. Com- like really, like if I was a patient, the better I could communicate um, the weeks leading up to how I was feeling, yes. where I had been, yes. locations. Because I'm, I'm kind of thinking that if you were in parts of Southeast Asia and you went to a GP with those symptoms, I, that would be very much on their radar. Yes. But... I'm thinking more of the traveller who goes to a developing country in the tropics and then goes back to their country and is dealing with a doctor who may have never treated someone with dengue. So it's it's that that communication, talking about the... Would you even suggest keeping a log or documenting yourself, writing down your symptoms as they go day by day? Shannon, I think that's a good idea for any illness Mm -hmm. because when we are ill, we have trouble, uh, honestly, on our best days, we have trouble recalling what we ate for lunch the previous day. Yeah, (laughs) for sure. And and so whenever whenever we start getting seriously ill, and I think it's it's a really good idea to take a journal and start documenting it or take your smartphone out and keep some notes because um, recall... Is, is not something you can rely on when, when your systems are not functioning properly. And, and what you raised is a very, very important issue where if you get exposed to dengue and you travel right away back to your home country where dengue is not encountered and you present with a fever, um, your chances of having a physician that's very familiar with managing dengue is, is very low. And, and okay. that could, that could uh, present a problem. Fortunately... Uh, just like everything else is so connected today, um, physicians do have um, the the ability and the habit of reaching out to other experts and saying, well, you know, my, my, my patient came back from uh, gotcha. from travels, mm. would make a referral to a specialist who's more familiar with that. So, so that fortunately happens today. Um, but we do hear of, of stories where things have gone horribly wrong. Mm. And I'll give you another example, Shen. Um, one of the the more serious stages of dengue or severe dengue is is referred to as dengue shock, mm. where 
the the definition of shock, uh, if you want to be a purist, is when your tissue is not supplied with enough oxygen to to complete the the necessary tasks. So I could have a, a motor vehicle accident and I could bleed out, and because I've lost blood volume, I could go into shock. I could have a massive heart attack, and because my heart is no longer able to pump blood in a forward direction, I could have shock. Okay. I could have an overwhelming bacterial infection in my bloodstream and my blood vessels would lose all of its tone and become really relaxed and I could have shock. Now dengue shock is a little different because in all of those scenarios that I just described, the motor vehicle accident, the heart attack and the overwhelming bacterial infection, patients are obviously in distress, obviously sick, more often than not belonging in an intensive care unit, not just a hospital ward. But in dengue shock, Shannon, we have seen people who continue to even go to work till the very last mm. stages of dengue shock because of how well they <coughs> feel in that critical period. That's my second example of why dengue is a disease of paradoxes. So let me just clarify that. So the way I say shock then, if the tissues aren't getting the nutrients and blood that they need to function... Effectively, those tissues are shutting down. They can't yes. be. They can't be used. Yes. Or they can't be used to their maximum potential. Correct. That's a protective mechanism by the body. Correct. Well, I think shock happens when the body is actually harmed. So but what, what I'm getting to is why is it is it doing that to protect the vital organs so it can it concentrate more energy on survival. So, survive. Well, so yeah. So it's. It's, it's, okay, I'm going to shut down the arms and the legs because I want to protect the heart and the lungs because that's what's in, in this critical state. Well, absolutely, Shannon. Is so that, that what's going on there? Well, that happens. And that's, and that's where I'm a bit confused because if someone's in that state and they're still, they're still able to do day-to-day -day tasks. And that's why dengue shock is unique. Um, let me put it to you this way. In all of the other forms of shock that I described one of the first parameters your doctor would look at is your blood pressure. And in almost all of those instances that I described, the blood pressure would be low. So the blood pressure being low in a massive heart attack where the heart muscle is not working as a pump, where I've lost a massive amount of blood, where I have an overwhelming bacterial infection, if I'm in shock, you could pretty much ex expect that my blood pressure would be low except in dengue fever until the late stages of shock the blood pressure may actually be preserved but there's another parameter that every provider who's managing dengue fever should pay attention to and that's called the pulse pressure Shannon you know that when you've had your blood pressure taken at the doctor's office there's a top number and a bottom number the top number is called the systolic blood pressure. The bottom number is called the diastolic blood pressure. And in dengue fever, what we must pay attention to is the difference between these two numbers, more so than the actual numbers itself. Because one is actually representing the heart filling. One is representing the heart ejecting, correct? So that is... That's the da-dum, yes. da-dum, da-dum, yes. ba-dum, ba-dum. Now, yeah. in dengue fever... We must pay attention, of course, to the, to the actual numbers themselves, but careful attention to the difference between the top number and the bottom number, which is called the pulse pressure. Now, let me give you an example. 
if the the dengue literature will tell us that if the pulse pressure is less than 20 millimeters of mercury that's actually a form of dengue shock if i were to tell you that someone's blood pressure is 105 over 90 at first glance shannon those may look like um, acceptable parameters for um, young to middle-aged female for example 105 over 90 doctors may not look twice at it but if you actually calculate the pulse pressure 105 minus 90 that's 15 and that's less than 20 so if this person had dengue technically they're in a compensated form of dengue shock and this person could be at their office doing their work from the time the pulse pressure gets to less than 20 mm -hmm. to the time where people get really really sick with dengue that could happen very quickly in a matter of hours right. so identifying so the that's a real key marker absolutely absolutely and that's but that, that seems to me that it would take a, a gp who's quite knowledgeable and advanced it, it seems like it's quite a refined marker am i right or not well shannon i've 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 taught um regular lay people okay how to look out for a pulse pressure because most people have access to a blood pressure mm. monitor they could go to a chemist where they have the the blood pressure monitoring things or when they go to their own doctors with dengue fever i've encouraged them to to basically do a simple subtraction take the top number subtract it uh, subtract the bottom number from the top number and and one just has to be aware of the unique things uh, that define dengue uh, so getting back to why dengue is a disease of paradoxes it's not all about the top number mm -hmm. in the other forms of shock yes the top number gets a lot of attention the systolic blood pressure but in dengue shock it is not just about the top number but it is about the difference between the top number and the bottom number of blood pressure so that's that's one thing and, and there's another paradox <coughs> that I'll highlight later on and, and do you want to highlight it now? sure the you know dengue is labelled as a hemorrhagic fever and what that means is hemorrhagic means tendency to bleed but really the the underlying problem of dengue fever and how it affects our body Shannon is not not um, primarily due to bleeding. For example, Ebola is a classic example of a hemorrhagic virus where there's a lot of bleeding when that happens when someone has Ebola. We do see bleeding in dengue, but that's not the primary hallmark of what goes wrong in our body when we have dengue. I'm going to describe this um, so that the, our listeners can visualize uh, what happens in our blood vessels when we have dengue. Um, let's say that we are driving through a tunnel we've all probably done that at some point in our lives so let's pretend that there are red cars white cars and maroon cars going both ways in this tunnel and let's also imagine Shannon that this tunnel is made of bricks the, the wall of the tunnel is completely made of bricks and let's add to this picture let's pretend that we are driving in water so the tunnel is filled with water and we are driving red cars, white cars and maroon cars. Okay. 
So the red cars would be your red blood cells. The white cars would be your white blood cells. And let's say the maroon cars are your platelets. And the water in the tunnel is your plasma. And the brick wall being intact represents a normal blood vessel. Uh, <coughs> technically, there are tiny gaps around each brick, even in a normal blood vessel. Hmm. But the gaps are tiny. There's no serious consequence. What happens when we get infected with the dengue virus, Shannon? Imagine that every other brick just disappears right. from the tunnel. Okay, so which means that the gaps are, uh, between the cells that line our blood vessels really open up. So what happens is that the water spills out of the blood vessel into our tissue. And that's what I referred to in the beginning as fluid accumulation. Yeah, I'm, I'm not laughing at you. I'm actually <laughs> laughing at what an awesome analogy is for someone like me who struggles with the technical concepts. And I, all of a sudden in that moment, it just all made sense. No, and, and, and it is, this is important because I'm, I have a simple brain. I, have a, I need to visualize a lot of things and, and I, I, don't and I use I don't this. Think it's <laughs> so, so imagine <laughs> if, if, if you have now lost every other brick gotcha and the water is just leaking out if you measure Shannon the concentration of the red cars in the tunnel mm -hmm. uh, not the actual number of red cars but the concentration of it as a proportion to the amount of water that's left in the tunnel mm. it would appear that the red cars are now concentrated because there's less water in the tunnel gotcha. the water has gone out same number of red cars, but mm. if you measure the concentration, it would appear that the concentration of red cars is now higher because, not because there are more red cars, but because there's less water. Gotcha. Okay? So that test is called a hematocrit, which looks at the <coughs> concentration or dilution of blood. And this is something a patient could request? It's, Shannon, fortunately, this, this is a very common blood test. It's common. The okay, moment so you do a full mm -hmm. blood count, the hematocrit, is a component of that full blood count. So doctors will be savvy to that already Well, in most countries. What, what we need to do is make people aware, mm -hmm. patients as well as providers, that in dengue you must pay the utmost attention to the hematocrit because if you pull up, Shannon, a full blood count sample from the internet or if mm -hmm. you've ever had a full blood count done, you would probably see... 20 different parameters just listed one under the other gotcha um, and it's just item after item after item after item mm. and most of the items on a full blood count don't matter much in dengue fever but everybody pays attention to platelets and, and perhaps rightfully so because it is a warning sign if your platelets rapidly decline but what I pay more attention to, Shannon, in someone who has dengue fever is not actually the platelets as much as the hematocrit, the concentration of the blood. Okay. And if that concentration shoots up unacceptably, that to me is a big red flag. Another strong marker. Yes, that the person is headed probably okay. not where we want mm. to. Okay. And that's an indication that now we have to be really, really careful with how we manage the fluids in that patient. Now, while we have this, I'm going to continue for a little bit longer, Shannon. Yeah. While we have this visual image of this tunnel, so in the critical phase, every other brick would disappear. 
the tunnel would be a very loosely contained structure. But as we pass the critical stage and we enter the recovery phase, some of those bricks would start to come back. Okay? The gap junctions would start to close. And due to very, very complex um, biomechanical signals, the water that was outside will come rushing back into the tunnel as these bricks close. Now, I'm going to give you two scenarios. The first scenario, this tunnel is managed by a doctor who is very familiar with dengue fever. Yep. And the moment the alternate bricks started to disappear, the doctor would keep a very careful eye on two things. The hematocrit, the concentration of the red cars in the tunnel, and the pulse pressure, the difference between the systolic and the diastolic blood pressure, one minus the other. And based on these two, this doctor would decide how much extra fluid to give the patient, either through the mouth to drink, or if it's not possible to keep up um, to maintain enough through an intravenous line, mm -hmm. would know exactly how much to give with caution. Because in dengue, if you just open up the lines and give too much fluids, that in, in instances kills more than the virus itself. Okay, so this is what I was going to get to next is treatment. Yes. So you have just started to touch on that. That would be a first response treatment. And I guess what sounds confusing to me is that when I hear of fever, dry mouth, nausea, I just start pounding as much water as I can. Okay, but in this instance, it's not the best way to go. Well, Shannon, I'm going to uh, interject that. Okay. In, the, in that first period, the febrile period, where you have the fever... Hydration is key. Hydration is key because the risk during that phase is actually dehydration. Ah. So it's okay to drink in that phase. Okay. So days, say day zero to about day four or five, when you have the fever, mm. do drink. But I'm, I'm referring to the critical, the critical phase. phase when... The, that's when the every other brick from the tunnel would disappear. So it's, doing it's touch and go that phase. Yes, like that's when you need to really be on your game. Absolutely, absolutely. So when you enter the critical phase, that's where you must be very judicious with the management of fluids. If the tunnel is pretty intact, just continue as before. Don't overload your patient or yourself okay. with fluids. If lots of bricks start start to disappear. You have to give just enough fluids to make sure that the pulse pressure stays okay and the concentration of the red blood cells stay okay, but not too much. Gotcha. Because we know that after the critical period comes the recovery period where all of that fluid... Now, imagine, Shannon, all the fluid that was given to you during the critical period when the bricks were still missing, a lot of it still goes out to the tissue. So it's very easy to overdo this. And if, you, if someone has taken too much fluids or someone has been administered too much fluids in the critical phase, they'll get into trouble with fluid in the lungs in the recovery phase because all of that will come rushing back into the system. The heart will be um, overwhelmed and fluid will back up into the lungs. So in countries that have the technology to deal with that, like breathing machines and ventilators, you could, you know, you could then... then try to fix it but let's face it in most areas where dengue is a problem um, 
this is uh, not a luxury that that most patients have is intensive care and and positive pressure ventilation and so on and so forth so managing the fluids when the bricks start to disappear in that tunnel that is what makes or breaks dengue management wow, that's that's a powerful point and uh hopefully someone gets a lot out of it you know i really yeah and it's it just all of a sudden became very clear to me and it kind of really links the three phases together that analogy that you put forward okay so treatment let's just let's do a summary of treatment initial phases hydration yes. rest yes um anything else yes they're so, the key ones so one of the key things in dengue is to avoid any medication that will increase your chance of bleeding okay so a big group of these medicines are called non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs so we call them NSAIDs for short so this is your ibuprofen avoid uh, those naproxen avoid them aspirin panadol panadol is okay if you want to take something to get you out of your misery you can take some panadol or paracetamol but certainly not aspirin ibuprofen or naproxen or any of the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs because they interfere with how well platelets work Thank you. and other aspects of the blood clotting process. So, th- so these drugs in dengue may increase your chances of bleeding. Um, another thing to avoid is intramuscular injections. For the same reason, you can end up with a big whopping bruise. Why, can you explain intramuscular injections? What, like, are you talking steroid injections? No, sometimes if you have a lot of vomiting or nausea... Doctors will give you that, like an anti-nausea. Anti-nausea medicine through into the muscle because it's, it becomes difficult for you to take tablets. So try to avoid unless it's really critical. Absolutely. Okay. And another thing to try and avoid unless it's really important is actually intravenous fluids. Shannon, in my, experience, okay. in, in my experience, a lot of dengue um, can be managed conservatively with a watchful eye, with serial blood tests, uh, measuring uh, blood pressures, and with oral fluids. Okay. It is not every case of dengue that will need an IV drip. And, and why are we even more particular about intravenous uh, access in dengue? One is that if there is a bleeding tendency, you could easily bleed from the site where the, the IV line goes into your skin. And also, there's a tendency for, for people with dengue to have slightly higher chances of other unrelated infections at the same time. So that IV site could get infected very easily. And then you're dealing with, the, with, yet with a second bacterial infection in addition to the dengue virus. So if at all, and I think... It's fair to say that this is good practice across the board. If you don't need an IV drip, you don't need an IV drip. And and I've, I've seen it in almost every country where I practice medicine. Um, we are very quick to insert uh, an IV cannula and, and open up the drip. It's almost a reflex thing that gets done when you go to an emergency room for, for any reason. And I think we should get away from doing that across the board and really see why are we doing this intervention and the same goes for testing why are we doing this test so there has to be in an ideal world a little bit of thinking that goes on before actions are done and in dengue it's uh, it's even more so important than in other conditions right so in terms of prevention like the obvious ones are Try not to get bitten by a mosquito in right. a tropical country. Right. 
So repellents, um, long sleeve shirts, long pants. Yes. Just be mindful. Yes. To try to sleep with mosquito nets, etc., yes. etc. Et yes. But from a physiological standpoint, and it just dawned on me as I'm, as I was thinking this, we need to have a strong immune system and build our white blood cell count, correct? Can we build our white blood cell count through nutrition, good lifestyle? Uh, you know, I just don't even, I don't even know that. I thought I knew that, but I don't. Well, I think... <laughs> Can we? Or no, we just... No, I think you, you raise a very, very important point. It's... it's um, I would look at it more of building the function of our white blood cells rather than increasing the numbers. And how can we do that? Well... In the immune system, Shannon, the white blood cells are just a part of the orchestra. There are, we have not even begun to completely understand the components of the immune system. Um, when I explain it to my own children, mm. um, I, would, I would tell them, look, think of the immune system as your body's military. Gotcha. Okay. And they are always patrolling, always looking to make sure that that everything's okay and if something's not if there's a breach from the outside or a breach from the inside mm. then they would go into action and, and just like any military there are many layers of of, uh, of action you have uh, you know the infantry the cavalry you have the, the generals you have uh, and that's just in one arm of the military you have the army the air force the navy so so the immune system is as complex infinitely more so than than that military example. So, um, what do we do when we haven't identified all of the components of a, of a human immune system and haven't really understood how it works? What do we do? We do what makes sense. We know that good lifestyle, avoiding toxins, putting healthy ingredients into our body, making sure that we are not nutritionally deficient in any area, um, making sure our lymphatics are working properly, mm. so that's with walking, <coughs> with movement, with exercise. And and I think we touched on this a little bit in our previous podcast, our, uh, probably a bit biased in this area, but our, our emotional states. How, how are we emotionally, how are we um, in terms of how grounded we are? Reducing stress hormone. Reducing stress. And, and, and the connection is very clear. Um, cortisol is a, is a hormone that we make in uh, a response to stress, which is essentially a steroid. And which is linked to fight or flight responses. Yes, yes. So if we are constantly in fight or flight, constantly, instead of just when we need to be, um, then our immune systems will take a big hit. And and so all of these things... Does it take a lot... Does it, sorry, sorry no, no, no. in there. Does it take a lot of e- um, energy to for your body to produce cortisol, adrenaline? Like th- So does that deplete your... Your stores of energy and, nutri- and, um, and nutrients. I think um, the answer is yes, but the question is to what extent. And but I think the bigger effect of that is the stress scenario that it creates in our body. Then our body starts to prioritize tasks. In and if that stress is unwarranted, then all of that uh, it's like a false alarm. Mm. Um, and and so when you have a false alarm, we have energy directed to certain things that take away from what actually should be done. So, but in dengue fever, Shannon, um, there's, at least in, in, in this stage, aside from being 
healthy in general. I don't think there's anything specific that we can uh, necessarily do. However, I'm going to mention some of the the herbal and natural remedies that we have in dengue fever. And contrary to popular belief, Shannon, there's actually a lot of research being done in this area. Um, when we think of medical research, we automatically visualize published prestigious medical journals that, that come out of, of, uh, of the Western uh, medical academia. But medical research goes much beyond that. And, and uh, if we look at research from various arms of medicine, Ayurveda medicine has a tremendous amount of research. Um, homeopathic medicine has a very rich tradition of, of medical research. Specific examples? It's Echinacea? Things like that. I, it, it's. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I'll give you. Because um, can I speak? Can I just speak yes, from my experience? Absolutely. Um, there was a, about six or seven years ago, I really reevaluated my diet. So I cut down on carbohydrates, processed foods, refined sugars, and gluten. Okay, and because I did some reading about the importance of gut health, and I read that that is where a majority of your nutrients are absorbed. So if you can increase the absorption of nutrients in your in your gut, okay, it's going to lead to optimal health. And wow, the the results have been massive. Um, I, you know, I've, I rarely get ill. I I, I don't get. Uh, although <laughs> that being said, the last couple of weeks I have had a bit of a respiratory in, re respiratory infection, um, but still able to sustain normal lifestyle function. So for me, that was one of the most powerful changes and reducing the inflammation in the gut. And uh, again, it, like, does that correspond with, okay, I haven't increased my white blood cells, but I have improved my immunofunction? Absolutely, Shannon. Okay. And, 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 and I, th I think that link between the gut and our yeah. immune system, we are discovering more and more each day how critical that is. And, and another big marker for me was um, eating nutrient-dense foods. So... Once I stopped purchasing my fruits and vegetables from mainstream supermarkets where the products may have been in transit for weeks on end and lost their nutri nutritional value and spent a little bit extra money on buying local and buy organic, yes. um, again, huge effects in not just my health, but my just overall sense of well-being, um, you know, my cognitive function able to concentrate for longer periods of time my relationships improved both professionally and personally and and all stem from diet and, yes. and increase increasing nutrient value in, in my in my daily practices so i'm sort of listening to what you're saying and i just drew this huge personal link and um going back to reducing inflammation because it sounds like when you talk about fluid that's an infl inflammatory response in a way. In yeah. a way. And if we, if we focus on that, go back to that tunnel that we're driving, yeah. Shannon, those bricks are individual cells. They're right. called the endothelial cells of the blood vessels. Okay. So if, you're, if, if someone's in a state where the endothelial cells are working in tip-top shape to begin with, are they going to do better off in dengue fever than someone who had a lot of problems with the endothelial cells and how they fit with one another and how they communicate with one another to begin with? Absolutely. Do I have a way of proving it? Not yet. But it just makes intuitive sense that if your endothelial cells are in great health, that you already have an advantage in, in, in this specific example of dengue fever 
over someone who has very weak and poorly functioning endothelial cells. I love that term you just used. You said it makes intuitive sense. And I really feel like that's that you know, connection between body and mind and spirit. Right. And again, that's holistic health. Right. Intuitive sense. And in, maybe, maybe we should work on developing our intuitive sense and connecting mind and body more. Um, because when you think about it, um, like the decisions that you make in regards to your lifestyle are so crucial to... Sorry, I've just lost my train of thought. <laughs> no, it's but you know what I mean? I love the term. I'm going to start using that intuitive sense because I think no one knows our body as well as we do. Absolutely. And true. even though we could try to communicate that to a professional or a, a GP or a physician, right. um, we, we, we seem to know. And I feel like once you, once you start that journey... And again, logging for me and keeping a journal of what was working because I, I, I feel like I actually diagnosed myself as celiac. But a physician's never told me that. But now it's so clear. I, I started eliminating various foods and go, oh, I, I didn't eat that today and wow, I don't have the bloating. Right. Or I ate this today and wow, I feel terrible. My, I'm, I'm, getting, I'm, I'm having an adrenal response to, carb, to uh, too many carbohydrates. I'm like, what? So again, I... I see what you're saying about intuitive, in making intuitive sense. Maybe that's what we need to nurture. What and do we, we do this, Shannon, especially when I um, am dealing with little little ones, and and I'm I'm trying to figure out which way uh, a certain illness is going. I rely heavily on the parents, on mom, on dad. I'm like, what do you think? And I ask this question: What do you think? What do you think? I mean, if, if something is is extremely clear, slam dunk diagnosis, that's different. Yeah. And if the child is completely well, that's different. But in this grey zone where I'm seeing them, you know, for just a 15 minute or a half an hour segment and I'm trying to piece things together, but there's a mother or a father who's with this child 24-7, I rely heavily. And I, and you I, tap and I, into that. Absolutely. Yeah. And it would be a mistake not to. Mm. So making use of every available resource um, in, 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 in trying to achieve our common goal. I think that's that's what it's all about. So in, in, in dengue, we first is to understand that this is a unique illness. Most of the time it's going to be mild, but when it turns severe, if you're not prepared, if you're not familiar, outcomes will be bad, people will die. There are deaths due to dengue. Mm-hmm. Um, in countries that really collectively manage dengue very well. I'll give you Singapore as an example. Uh, the deaths are less than 1%. But if you look beyond to, uh, to other um, uh, settings with poor infrastructure and poor um, educational aspects, that number can creep up to 2%, 3% or mm-hmm. even higher. Um, so, so understanding dengue is key. And I would like to see a world where the individuals, the people who actually are susceptible to dengue, would be the last line of defense. Because if you end up with a provider who's not as familiar with, with the disease, but if everyone who can get the disease would be educated enough to, to at least know the basics of the three stages of dengue and the do, a few do's and don'ts, that is a huge start, and that's a huge start. So that, so that um, when I do my workshops, I, I I ask people to be advocates for their family and their loved ones who may have dengue, 
And if they happen to visit someone in a hospital and say, oh, wow, this is the sixth day of dengue. Oh, look at your pulse pressure. That's low. Has anyone noticed it? Oh, look at this parameter that's HCT or that's a hematocrit. Wow, that's Mm. really going up. And what's this on your medication record? You're getting ibuprofen for your fever. So these are things that, that, that all of us could uh, act as a uh, line of defense against uh, because hospital systems are busy, health systems are busy, humans make mistakes, mm. systems are full of error. So um, being aware and being educated is, is, uh, is really where I, I want to focus mm. on, 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 on aspects of dengue. I think, that's a, I think that's a really good summary. And I also think that yeah, whether you're in a tropical country developing country you know non-tropical cold i really think it is good practice to educate yourself about the things or the health issues that are problematic in that area absolutely um and it, to me that's life ownership absolutely and 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 you will hear uh, two sides of the argument Shannon. you would you would hear a provider say well we have spent um all of this time and the years and the energy mastering our craft and and there's no way that a layperson could could begin to even understand um, what this is about and it could be dangerous for people to quote unquote self-diagnose or self-treat mm. um, so my point of view is slightly different yes I have spent I, I mean if you count the years I have you know pre-medicine then four years of medical school then three plus one years of residency plus two years of fellowship yes so it's 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 many 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 years yeah um but what i would like to see is taking all of that complexity and making it simple enough for everyone to share and for the information gap to be narrowed in a safe constructive way i believe it can be done I absolutely believe it can be done. And in my humble opinion, the longer that this information gap persists, um, the further we are from from achieving true health. I'm not asking lay people to be expert medical doctors. That is absolutely not what this is about. But knowing enough, being aware enough uh, of their own bodies and, and, and as you correctly said, of common ailments affecting your demographic, your geographic area, um, is is absolutely essential in, in in achieving good health. I love it, doctor. It's been it's been epic. It's it's been it's been an hour and eleven minutes. Four actually no, an hour and fourteen minutes. And um, last night, I before I was going to have this conversation with you, I started googling dengue, and there is a plethora of information out there, and. Um, but I do feel there's just so much more power in just having a conversation, but maybe not just with physicians. Like, I feel like it's really powerful to just have conversations with people in your community as Absolutely. well and draw off their experiences. Like, do you agree with that? I mean, or you, as a physician, do you get wary of misinformation? Well, misinformation is always, always a problem, Shannon. But what I try to do is when I work with someone um, with dengue fever, is that I teach them in the process. So uh-huh. I joke with my patients that I said, oh, congratulations, now you're an expert in dengue. <laughs> because <laughs> You learned the hard way. Because when I, when I go through, uh, I, 
I vocalize and I verbalize what I'm looking for and, and what you would see in in if things were not going so well and, and we are in a good place because we're seeing this. So it's almost like a, a mini workshop that I'm doing with my patient in real time. And and um, and I love it when, when, when they ask me a question, well, well, that doesn't make sense. Well, why wouldn't this happen? Then I say, aha, it's because of this. And we, you know, it's that lively dialogue that, that really keeps me on my toes. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so I want to, um, what I really strive for is to, is to make people aware and really tap into, pe- because people are keen to learn. And sometimes they're intimidated by it. And, and I just want to take away that fear, that intimidation of, of learning uh, about health conditions because health is something, as you alluded to many times, it's something very private to us. We should take ownership instead of outsourcing it at, at the first instance. And we should be wise enough to know the limits of our expertise mm. as patients and as doctors. And I think value ourselves enough right. to take our health serious. Right. Absolutely. And I think, I, personally, I struggle with that. And I, I keep thinking, because health is the foundation of everything else in your life. And I, it astounds me that people aren't taking it as serious as they should. And Absolutely. I'm sure you feel that all the time. No, it is. And, I, and I'm sympathetic, um, Shannon, because I've worked with, with people from all aspects of life. And, and if someone is struggling to put food on the table for their family, ah, yeah. they're going to focus on that first because health becomes something invisible almost unless you're actually having severe symptoms you tend to i would do exactly the same in that situation and Mm. and uh, dare i say in certain parts in at certain times of my life i've done exactly that where if things have gotten so critical i have to prioritize okay this is this is what i need to do now but your lesson here shannon is that you have to think long term and what i encourage people who find themselves in that situation where things are absolutely critical you have to work two and a half jobs three jobs to put food on the table is not to have a sequential mindset where i'm going to do this now and be healthy later but to reach out reach out to your support network if you if you're fortunate enough to have one reach out and get some information on some simple things no matter how simple it is it may be the simplest of things to contribute towards your health do that simultaneously i know it's it, it's it it's hard for people to appreciate when they're in critical situations but my appeal to them is you can take small health steps that are free that you don't need any special equipment for that will not take any excess energy, will not put you out of the way at all. It, there are things that everyone can do, no matter how dire their circumstances. And I'm very sensitive to the fact that that when people are up against the wall, that they would prioritize things for the short term. And mm. that's that's something that that uh, that happens. But but maintaining that, uh, not giving up on health, mm. no matter how tough it is. Um, that's what I would encourage people to do. Mate, I think that's a beautiful way to end. Thank you for your time. I thoroughly enjoy talking to you, Changa. Is there anything else you want to add? Um, no, I just I just want to 
highlight what an amazing thing you're doing, Shannon, because you're you're bringing amazing people together, and you are putting this out into the world for for other people to 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 listen to and 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 be a part of. And thank you, brother. And inspiration is something that we all need, and I look for it. You know, when I read a good book, when I listen mm-hmm. to a podcast, and sometimes it may take. Ten things, and the eleventh thing might be the thing that that tips us over to to making that change. So I really value what you're doing, and 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 I hope the listeners are as appreciative. They are, and thank you. I really appreciate those words, and just I think there's inspiration in everyone, even the especially the layman. Um, and I've, I've, I'm starting to discover that sometimes, like, you find your lessons where you least expect them, right? From the people you least expect. I mean, I learned a lesson off a 15-year-old yesterday in my, one of my classes. And it, it was that final piece of the jigsaw puzzle. And all of a sudden, it just made everything else seem, like make sense. And I, I won't go into it. So um, I really don't underestimate the power of conversations and communicating and, and, and sharing, sharing your story. Because it's, it's your story and it, it's going to help someone else, in my opinion, yes. who maybe on a similar path or a similar similar journey so your life and the way you live has value for others yes no matter what you do yes um it, and it just seems like in this case your journey is a is a medical expert and um and it's just been amazing to be able to tap into that and i hope we can continue to do so so i would love to anyway i've got another meeting to go to um which won't be anywhere as near as interesting as this and um, thanks for the coffee. I don't know what you put in that thing, but, mate, I'm jittery. <laughs> it, was the best, it was the best coffee I've had all week. I'm just like, oh, I feel like going for a jog or something. But anyway, thank you, my friend. Thank you, Shannon. All right. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Okay, have a great day, mate. You See too. You. Bye-bye. Hey, so before we kick off the podcast, I just want to talk about getting your morning kick in Belmont Coffee. Belmont is owned by skaters, barbers, traders, and musicians. They came together with the idea of creating a co-pilot that's next to you on the late night drives, early mornings on the job site, or a midday pick-me-up. Ethically sourced beans in a sustainable can and ready to go when you are. Use the code THT to score a discount at belmont.com. That's Belmont, B-E-L-L-M-O-T-T dot com.